Okay. Uh, the missional one will be on the podcast, I suppose, in a week or something like that since it got canceled last time. So we'll do the missional one um, via podcast with uh, Father Chris Sorens, and we'll do that. So, um, so we canceled last week. Thanks for the flexibility. I was supposed to do it last week, but um, Alethea was born Sunday morning last week. So uh, that was exciting. We were at the hospital. Um, she's home and all is well. Uh, we need more sleep, but <laughs> that's... That's how it goes with newborns. So thanks for being here and thanks for flexibility with me. I don't, you may not even know I was supposed to be here. So I don't know if they told you. I don't know what we've done in the past because I've been involved in other things, so I couldn't be in the confirmation class. So I'm not sure how it's gone prior to me being here. So I don't know if normally we have a PowerPoint or something like that. Good. Uh, I don't have a PowerPoint. So I was like, if everyone didn't and I don't, this may go bad. Um, but okay. Well, then let's start with uh, prayer. And then uh, we'll uh, you know, jump into this. We're doing the charismatic stream tonight, and uh, so we'll talk about that. But let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. God, we thank you for this time to stop and think about what it means to be Anglican. And as we prepare for confirmation, we pray that you will be with us in our conversation and the things we think and talk about this evening. I pray that you'll guide us, lead us to truth and to your glory. I pray this is... A, Formative for us, may it make us into the image of your son. We ask this in your mercy. Amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to start with a quick review reminder. I'm not exactly sure how others have handled this, but what is and why do we do confirmations? So I'll be very brief about that and then talk a bit about the charismatic stream. Um, I think it, it kind of went like this in the pastoral staff meeting. Who wants to talk about charismatic? Oh, Kevin's a Pentecostal. We should just ask him to do it. Uh, and so... Is that exactly what it, I, yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I grew up in the Church of God, in fact, um, and then went to Pentecostal Theological Seminary for a master's degree there and um, studied Pentecostal theology. Um, and that's not exactly the same thing as being charismatic, and I'll maybe describe some of the difference there. But, um, but in any case, I have some, you know, I guess a formal background in some of this stuff, so perhaps that's why, you know, I got to ask. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, so, uh, well, well, okay, what is confirmation? Why do we do it? Um, it's a sacramental rite. Confirmation is a sacramental rite. You probably already know that, but that's how it's described um, in the Anglican literature. So what is a sacramental rite? Well, a rite is a kind of formalized liturgical practice that we do in the church. We have these every Sunday. In fact, there are various rites that we go through. The Eucharist is its own kind of rite, but so is um, baptism, so is marriage, so is ordination. All these are the very, various kinds of rites that the church performs. In fact, if you have a copy of the BCP, um, it lists these things as rites. And so, you know, pastoral rites um, are things like marriage, healing, ministry of the dying, prayer, burial of dead, things like that. So these are rites. They're formal liturgical practices. They're sacramental in right. the sense... Okay. Yeah, Some that's of good. Those are sacramental, and that, in my mind, is very different than a rite. If they're not different, help me out. Thanks. I can get carried away moving too quick, too. Right. So, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, sacraments in the Anglican tradition, at least, are there are two sacraments: baptism and Eucharist. And they're sacraments because these are the things that Christ explicitly designated to be done by Christians. Um, and according to some, it depends on who you read on this. Sometimes it's tied to salvation. 
Now, it's not like you're saved by baptism or saved by Eucharist, but those who are um, a part of the covenant community are those who are baptized and participate in Eucharist. One doesn't have to participate in these other rites to be a part of the covenant community. Notice, one might be Christian without having been married, right? And so, uh, but a Christian will be someone who has been baptized um, and taken communion. I don't want to press that too far because part of being Anglican is also being a part of the Reformed tradition. We probably, I would think we would talk about that when we talked about what it means to be evangelical in the three streams. And basically being Reformed means we're saved by grace, by faith, not by works. Um, and so it's not baptism which does something that makes us saved, but baptism is a sacrament in that something is done to us in the midst of, of its practice. So sacraments there are two, baptism and Eucharist. Then there are sacramentals. These are things that are um, visible signs of an invisible grace. That's the general definitions by Augustine. Yeah. And then, yeah, and there are five. In fact, um, crossing oneself is sometimes thought of as a sacramental um, in the Anglican tradition. So marriage, burial of the dead, confirmation, these are sacramentals. They're not sacraments because they're not one of the two, but they're kind of like it in that they convey grace to us um, through visible means. Does that make sense? Tell me a right then. Yeah, so um, a right would be marriage, um, confirmation. These are rights. Uh, I, let me put it, let me say it this way. There's a general way to use the word right, and that's just as a formal liturgical practice. And then there's all kinds of rites, and baptism is one of those, and so is Eucharist, and so is confirmation. These are all rites because they're formalized liturgical practices. But there are, if you take rites as the big, there are sacraments that are rites, Eucharist and baptism, and then there are just sacramental rites, which are different from these two. Did that at all make any sense, or less clear? So is rite basically what ritual has come from? Yeah, that's right, yes. Yes, a rite is a ritual. Uh huh. Yeah. Thank y'all for thank you for asking that. Yeah, please. Throw questions at me. That'll make sure I'm not forgetting something or going too quickly. I also remember in our prayer book they would also refer sometimes as there were two different Eucharistic liturgies and we would refer to one as rite, one as rite too. Yeah, that's right. Seen also that usage. Yeah, and you won't find that in the current BCB because we don't have the two rites. We might, for Eucharist, have them, but in the BCP 79, they are listed precisely like yes. that. That's exactly right, yeah. And probably prior to that, I'm not familiar with the earlier editions, but the 79 version does list them as. I don't that. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't think there is two in the 28 book. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, just formalized liturgical practices. And so confirmation is one of those formalized liturgical practices. Um, and in, the BC, in our BCP, it's delineated as... Uh, the right in which one makes a public and personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, if you come from a non-Anglican background, so if you're like me, I was church God, evangelical, Pentecostal, um, the thing that was the public, personal kind of declaration of faith in Christ was baptism. That's what baptism functioned as. Um, in the Anglican church, confirmation functions as that. Baptism does something else. Um, and if you've been baptized or went through one of our baptism classes, we, we talk about that there. But So confirmation is that public profession of faith. Um, it's an opportunity for the bishop to lay hands uh, on you. And this is what our BCP says, so I'm going to 
read the quote from the, the it's at the, the beginning of the, the rite, if you were to look it up. Through the bishop's laying on of hands in prayer, in prayers for daily increase in the Holy Spirit, God strengthens the believer for Christian life in the service of Christ in this kingdom. That's what confirmation is supposed to do. Um, the bishop lays hands on you, prays for you, may not actually touch you. I don't, um, I don't think the bishop laid hands on me when I was confirmed. I don't recall that uh, actual laying on of hands, but he might have. Um, but anyway, the bishop does pray for each individual person. You will go up. Did they talk you through how this looks? No. Well, I know it from the yeah, it'll be the exact same liturgy. Um, I haven't compared the 79 and 2019, so it may not be the exact same liturgy, but it's similar. It will be very similar. Yeah. Um, you'll individually go up. We'll, we'll say as a congregation what are called the baptismal vows. Um, and I forget what page this is on. So let me look. These, these, they don't sound like vows, um, but you say I do like you would when you get married. Um, okay, let me find the confirmation. One seventy-five. So we'll, everyone stands together and do some call and response, um, and then you'll. As the, those who are being confirmed, you will be asked a, a question by the bishop, and then you'll respond with, I do. And these are the same questions that one would have done in baptism if you had been baptized. I didn't do this in baptism because I was baptized in a, you know, Church of God church in which it was just like, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, you know, and you got dunked. Um, so, uh, but anyway, you, you're asked, um, do you hear in the presence of God in the church, renew the solemn promises and vows you make at your baptism, and then everyone will say, I do. And you run through a list of these. Um, and then the, he asks the congregation something. And then each person goes up to the bishop uh, and receives prayer and laying on of hands. Um, and you get to kiss the ring if you want to, um, which is sort of an interesting experience. You've never done it. You don't have to. This is what is basically instructed to us is one does not have to kiss the ring. But that's an opportunity as an act of recognition of that person's representing Christ to us, but also uh, an act of submission. It seems weird in our culture, I know, but sometimes Christ calls us to submit, you know, to others. And that's a part of what it means to be Anglican is to be in submission to the bishop in a certain sort of way. So that's part of the process. And then go back to the, your seats. Yes. So, Kevin, when we do that, do we kneel down? I think so. You know, they said in there, I read through. Yeah. read through the BC. You read the preface too. That's, it, that's helpful too. On page one, start starting one seventy four. Yeah, but yeah, it does talk about kneeling. The bishop is seated. I mean, they give this in the rubric. Yeah, he wasn't seated when I did this though. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's very yeah okay. Or maybe he was, and I'm misremembering. Um, so here's the preface: the Anglican Church requires a public and personal profession of the faith from every adult believer in Jesus Christ. Confirmation or reception by a bishop is its liturgical expression. Confirmation is clearly grounded in scripture. The apostles prayed for and laid their hands on those who had already, already been baptized. It references uh, 2 Timothy 1 and Acts 8 and Acts 19. In confirmation, through the bishop's laying on of hands and the prayer for daily increase in the Holy Spirit, God strengthens the believer for Christian life in the service of Christ and his kingdom. Grace is God's gift, 
And we pray that he will pour out his Holy Spirit on those who have already been made his children by adoption and grace and baptism. At the direction of the bishop and after public reaffirmation of their baptismal promises, those having made adult professions of faith in other Christian traditions, including those confirmed in other traditions, are received into the Anglican Church with prayer and laying hands, laying on of hands by a bishop. Confirmed members who are already members of this church, including those received from other traditions as above, those returning to active Christian discipleship after lapsing, and those experiencing a renewal of Christian commitment or significant life transition, may also reaffirm the pledges made to Christ and his church with prayer and laying on the hands of a bishop. And I'll tell you um, where... Yeah, when you do the confirmation and there's a, a prayer that's said over each person, the, each confirmand, that would be those who are being confirmed, kneels in front of the bishop. The bishop then laying his hands upon the person's head, prays and says there's a two or three different prayers that can be said over each individual. Um, yeah, the prayers are depending whether you're being confirmed yeah. or whether you're being received or whether you're being reaffirmed. Yeah, right. So if you've backslidden, you know, this is your opportunity. <laughs> Or lapsed. That's the way the BC so people. Received is first time, com or confirmed is first time. Actually, if in the Anglican tradition, if you were born, say you were christened as a, you were baptized as a child, then you're actually confirmed, because then you're making public your profession. According to that, then it's saying if you if if you've already been baptized like you were, technically yeah. then you were received. Right. And technically, you know. Probably most everybody in this room is going to be received. Yeah. So if as you've been baptized and you've made a public profession of faith as an adult, as an adult in a you know, then you're being confirmed. Received. Received. received yeah. <laughs> but we just call it confirmation. But yeah, technically, okay. yeah, just received. That's right. It's a good distinction. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, so what what confirmation does besides I say besides, but first it's a it's a it's a sacramental. So there's God's grace is being made available and kind of effective in one's life through this particular liturgical moment. Um, but it's a chance for one to uh, reaffirm their faith, be received into the church. And so it is being made, not a member of mission, Cleveland Parish, that's, uh, you know, we have another thing that, you know, you may have already done that to become a member of the church. We don't call it members, we're stewards, yeah. Um, so confirmation is not membership into the Mission Cleveland Parish, but it is being received into the Anglican Church, the ACNA in this case, the Anglican Church of North America. Um, and you'll get a little you know, certificate kind of thing that you can... May I ask this or clarify? Sure, ask yeah. for clarification. Some people heard it in our first class, but might not know now. There's been a question on women being ordained. That is approvable in the what we are being affirmed into or but each diocese can or cannot but we're not agreeing that they can or can't that they cannot if if you do you're really the umbrella is what we're agreeing that's with. right and that says that women can be ordained right yes uh yeah i think the simple answer is yes the more technical answer um is that yes when you you're being received into the acna at large yeah, that's right. And then what the ACNA's official statement is, not either pro or against, as I understand it, it's not pro or anti-women ordination, it's we'll let the diocese make up their own decision on this. Um, and that can be changed. At any yeah, time. and so as it turns out, the Diocese of the South 
does not ordain women to the priesthood, but does to the diaconate. Um, but other dioceses do ordain women all the way up. Some dioceses do not even ordain women to the diaconate in the ACNA. But yeah, it is up to each individual diocese. There are dioceses in the ACNA that don't allow women readers. That is to stand and read just, you know, passages of scripture. Um, but thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So why do we have a confirmation class? Well, to help you understand what you're kind of getting yourself into both liturgically, like what's going to happen that day. Um, and, uh, but then also what, what are you being received into? What, what's the kind of ethos or, or view of this particular church? And I don't know that this is typical of confirmation classes, but the way we've chosen to do it as a part of the Mission Abbey is to introduce you to the three streams that are kind of part of what it means to be a CNA Anglican at least. Um, and those three streams, I imagine you've already been told, are evangelical, liturgical, and charismatic. Another way it's been put is Protestant, um, Pentecostal slash holiness, and Anglo-Catholic. Um, and so I think the first week with Luke Matthews was the evangelical. He talked about the word and maybe other things, but in our conversation when we were kind of planning this out, he said he would focus on scripture because um, that's pretty important to evangelicals is there's this kind of premier authority placed on scripture given its inspiration among other things there's more to say about being evangelical than that but um, that seems to be key among many evangelicals uh, and then to be and then the liturgical or the what's sometimes called anglo-catholic has to do with well our our form of worship among other things uh, as being somewhat uh, rhythmic and ritualized um, in a kind of liturgical sense um, and that's one hopes grounded in some way in the historic tradition. Now, you know, obviously enough, lots of different liturgical churches do this differently. Um, our church has a particular exception from the bishop that allows us to structure our liturgy slightly differently too. So if you were to go to um, a different Anglican church outside of the Mission Abbey, so uh, the one in Chattanooga is at Trinity, um, but there's another ACNA church not in the Mission Abbey, in Chattanooga, if you were to go there, it would look much more like, say, St. Luke's, if you've ever been to St. Luke's the Episcopal Church. The liturgy is going to be much more similar in that regard. We've been given certain exceptional exceptions um, by our bishop in order to be more missional. Um, the Mission Abbey has been given that permission. Um, but in general, the, the hope is that our liturgy includes elements that have historical significance all the way back, and that's part of what it means to be liturgical, the practice of Eucharist every time we meet. Uh, for example. Um, and coupled with that is an episcopate. Um, it's one of the four pillars of Anglicanism. So th that is our leadership structure and our bishops and priests can trace, purportedly at least, uh, you know, theoretically at least, we can trace their lineage all the way back to, you know, say James or Peter or whomever, one of the first apostles. The idea is that the bishop that we have currently um, was ordained by a bishop, was ordained by a bishop all the way back to, you know, whoever they can trace their lineage to. Um, that's a part of what it also means to be kind of liturgical or Anglo-Catholic is you know, keeping that train of um, ordination going. At least that, that's part of it. Um, and then last is that, well, missional is also in there. Missional is part of the Mission Abbey's of ethos, and that's why we have a week on being missional. It's not like other churches aren't missional, but this is a particularly important ethos for the Mission Abbey. Obviously, mission is a part of our name, and so we'll have a week on that. 
um, but it's tied to some of our evangelical or Protestant commitments of spreading the gospel, among other things. So that's part of that uh, identity, at least. And then lastly is charismatic. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. That's that's all the setup for that. (laughs) Okay, well, I want to start with some of your thoughts. When you hear charismatic, uh, what comes to mind? What's your background? What do you think? Expressive worship and speaking in tongues. Yes, expressive worship, speaking in tongues. I hear it. I didn't hear that. Expressive worship and speaking in tongues. Expressive worship and speaking in tongues. Anything else? Is that maybe that captures it for everybody? Well, if that be the case, where does that fit in with this mission? Yeah. When does that take place? I see the Anglican Church like a cake. The Catholic creeds form the shape of the cake. The ingredients in the cake is the liturgy. But the icing on top of the cake is the charismata. Okay. I would, I would like to speak to that because yeah. I have extensive background in the Assembly of God, too. Yeah. I preached in prisons. I was trained up um, to be the woman that went up for when women would come for prayer. Yeah. He was not married, so I was the woman that, you know, there was some order to it. Mm-hmm. And yes, there would be someone at the when it was done correctly in the right time, did not interrupt the service, would speak in tongues, the pastor would stop, someone would interpret it, and it would go with what the pastor was talking about. But what I saw a lot of was a misuse of people forcing and wanting to be the, look at me. um, And so I'm comforted in knowing that Sure. To move. And I, I, that's kind of brass, but um, I do. I seek safety here from yeah. misuse of the Holy Spirit and people that force themselves on other people. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I'm thank, I'm very thankful for yeah. this part of it. And I do. I have seen God move. I've seen sure. heal people. I've, I've seen. I'm one that's been slain in the spirit mm-hmm. for two and a half hours on the floor, and God just His presence was strong. Yes, but He chose it. Yeah. That wasn't when that happened. That wasn't anyone even praying over me. It just happened in a service. Yeah. He decided to move at that point in time. So, right. Um, we've experienced like just being overcome with emotion. It's just God's presence when He decides to touch someone. So. Yeah. I'm thankful for the bishop to actually lay hands on. I think there's some kind of yeah. blessing that He will bestow, and it is a. I think it's the presence yeah. of God and. And I'm open to that, but it's because it's a safe place for that to happen in an orderly fashion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. That's I good. Don't, I don't hear anybody speaking in tongues here. Yeah. Well, one of the questions we have to get clear on, Terrell, I think, is, so I start with, what do you think of when you hear charismatic? And so we get some response to that. But is that what we mean as an Anglican church by being charismatic? Um, and so if to be charismatic is to engage in speaking in tongues... Um, is that what we mean by it? 
and it just turns out it's missing in our church, or do we mean something maybe different by being charismatic? Um, and so that's part of the, the, the clarification. And then we also have to wrestle with um, what about the hurts and wounds that have come from the misuse of, or, yeah, I don't know, misuse or just the, I don't know, some, when it goes bad, <laughs> when it's problematic in uh, ecclesial experience, when, you know, in those services. And I've been those places too. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, so let's find out. So here's some more thoughts and then we'll, we'll come, maybe, what do we mean by charismatic? Yeah, good. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to mention what I think are five kind of elements of what it means to be charismatic. And one, I th- one of those, I think, is that kind of um, openness to, to experiences of, from God. Yeah. It's going to be the first one, in fact. I think that's probably the, kind of the prime. And then maybe that comes out in speaking in tongues, um, but maybe not. Maybe there are other uh, elements to it as well. Yeah. When do we... When do we see a spontaneous move of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the mission? Well, I think if there are a handful of occasions in which there have been spontaneous moves of the Spirit, but we might also that, want to that interrogate. They're visible, that's right. There's plenty that are not. Yeah, so that's what I was going to get at is. Yes. There are plenty that are not. Yes. There, there's a distinction between what, when do we see, well, that would be visible. I think yeah. a lot happens that we don't see. Yeah. yeah. And so we need to interrogate what we think are the notion of what we think are uh, experiences or spontaneous experiences of the Spirit. Um, and, and wonder whether those are, maybe that's, is that the only way or is that the primary way we ought to conceive of what it means to be uh, charismatic? Um, but to get back, oh, sorry, Carolyn, please. The way it's been And part of what grounds what Carolyn's saying is the idea that the Spirit has already inspired the liturgy itself, yeah. right? And so we're already operating within a structure that we take to be inspired by God. Um, and so we want to ensure that whatever spontaneous thing happens is already in line with what we take to have been inspired by God. Um, but there have been spontaneous moments. We've had, it all, we've had, not since you've been here, not since we've been in this building, by the way, but we've had altar calls. Um, Chris Sorensen preached and had an altar call after his sermon where we didn't do Eucharist right away. We did altar call instead. Um, another thing that we do regularly, that is once a year at least, is the first Sunday service. And many of you I know have been to first Sunday services where we have testimony time. This is the first, this is the first Sunday after the first of the year in which 
we, we do a liturgy that's associated with this, but one of the moments in the liturgy is anyone in the congregation can share what God did in their life in the past year, and that's a spontaneous moment for people to give up and give testimony. Um, so I think there's that. But there's also ways in which we may not see, as Bill was getting at. Um, there's opportunity for prayer every week with prayer ministers um, uh, or you know, prayer in the back or something like that, and that maybe in those cases. I can't speak to having seen that happen, but certainly I think spontaneous moves of the Spirit are happening in those prayer moments or in Eucharist. I'm a newcomer. Since you've been here, has there been anybody that has given a prophetic message in tongues as the brother brought to our attention? Not in our congregation, but I will tell you, when I was at the ordination uh, service of Luke Matthews, when he's been ordained as deacon, um, the bishop, who will be the bishop that does our confirmation service, prayed in tongues over every candidate. Now, if you, I was sitting on the very front row because I was one of his sponsors, um, and, and he didn't do it in a microphone. So if you were sitting in the back, there's no way you could have heard. You're sitting two rows back, you probably could not have known. But the bishop prayed in tongues over every um, ordinand that was there that day. Now, that's not our liturgical service, but this is, uh, I think, potentially a spontaneous moment of, um, you know, at least in this case, speaking in tongues. No interpretation because it was just a prayer over each person. Um, so, yeah. But I, I, want, I want to, me personally, want to potentially interrogate the idea that what marks us as charismatic is a regular or a consistent experience of what we might call spontaneous external experiences of tongues or prophecy. Um, because it might be the case that to be charismatic is to be maybe more than, um, or to have more than the experience of tongues or, or prophecy. In, in fact, I think what makes the Anglican church charismatic and not Pentecostal is that it doesn't focus on tongues as a kind of key element. And that's a classical Pentecostal thing to, that's what classical Pentecostals do is focus on tongues as a kind of key and core element. Assemblies of God is classically Pentecostal. Church of God is classically Pentecostal. And Some so, classical Pentecostals even have classes to teach you yeah. how to speak in tongues. No way. It's a debate within Pentecostal theology. Um, I, I have a colleague um, that is something like that notion is what he holds. Uh, about speaking in tongues, that one can just do it. Uh, and so there's various debates about that. Um, so, but yes, classical Pentecostals. So a bit of history of the kind of charismatic Pentecostal kind of movements. Um, classical Pentecostalism starts 1906-ish, Azusa Street Revival. You may have heard of this. It happens in Los Angeles. Um, maybe starts in Kansas, moves to Los Angeles, whatever the case. Anyway, there's, that starts kind of the classical Pentecostals. Out of that flows the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world, the Assemblies of God, um, and the Assemblies of God in Canada. Those are the two largest. And then there's a host of other smaller ones. Church of God's one of the smaller ones. That's based here in Cleveland. The Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, the one that's based here. There are a host of other Church of Gods out there too. Um, probably part of the Pentecost, classical Pentecostal movement. But all right, so early 1900s, it's our Church of God claims they start, you know, 1890s or whatever, but Pentecostalism kind of gets its kick here in the States, 1906-ish. Um, then later, in about the 1960s, we have what's called 
the charismatic renewal that happens, and that starts in Anglican churches, Episcopal churches here in the United States. Um, but it also happens in Roman Catholic churches. Your mainline churches start to experience uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, things like prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing. A, a few other things are involved with this too. But Yeah, deliverance. And so, you know, demon possession, deliverance might be associated with demon possession, these sorts of things. And then uh, the third wave, uh, Pentecostals are sometimes called third wave charismatics or sometimes called neo-charismatics. That comes about the 1980s, begins in non-denominational churches. Um, and uh, Vineyard's one of these. Vineyard itself is, I think, its own, I don't know what Vineyard's pedigree is, denominationally speaking. I don't know if they're their own denomination or if they're non-denom or whatever, but Vineyard's one of the main spaces this takes place in and a bunch of evangelical non-denominational churches uh, beginning what's called a third wave or neo-charismatic. What separates these movements is not just kind of what churches they're located in, but some of their theology, as it turns out. So classical Pentecostals really do focus on speaking in tongues and often speaking in tongues as the initial or an initial evidence of baptism in the Spirit. So first, the Spirit you, comes to one and baptizes one subsequent to their regeneration. So you have your kind of conversion experience, and then you'll have another experience is baptism in the Spirit. You're probably familiar with that if you're at all familiar with Pentecostalism. This is a kind of common teaching of Pentecostals. Um, have you ever signed a contract to believe? Yes. <laughs> God wants us to be balanced and just to focus on tongues, to me, seems very unhealthy. You, well, of course, classical Pentecostals don't only focus on tongues, but it is kind of a distinctive marker, particularly when we start comparing them to, say, charismatic. The charismatic renewal agrees speaking in tongues is important. Maybe there's a second experience of grace after regeneration, which is baptism in the Spirit. Um, but there's a wider, there's more breadth among the charismatics. Uh, that is to say, they don't take speaking in tongues as a kind of distinctive in the way that classical Pentecostals did. Um, so they maybe move towards more balance, I'm not sure. Uh, and then third wave, folks, um, there's, some dis there's some dissonance here in third wave because they're, they're dispersed. You don't have them in denominations where there's kind of control over um, the theology. Like the Church of God lays out what you're supposed to believe as a Church of God person about you know, speaking in tongues as the initial evidence. It's one of the kind of doctrinal commitments among the Church of God. Well, third wave, you know, they're non-denominational, a lot of them, so they don't have these kind of doctrinal commitments. And so they've got a variety of ideas about how the Spirit operates, when baptism happens, whether speaking in tongues is core, key, or whether there's any evidence for it or whatever. So it's much more divergent. Um, and also, I have not read any third wave person describe themselves in this way, but I've read other people describe third wave in this way. They are often more emotional and expressive and demonstrative in their uh, operation of the gifts. And that's sometimes the... So I want to be careful here because sometimes that's the description of critics of them. Does that make sense? So one probably ought not trust entirely the critics of someone else uh, as the, giving the best description of them, but that's often how they're described. So that's kind of like the background, but where does ACNA fit in all that? So if we're trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be charismatic, we're not classically Pentecostal because we don't find our roots in Azusa Street or Assemblies of God or, or whatever the case. That's not where ACNA or Anglicanism finds its roots. It's not quite third wave um, either because it's not non-denominational. Uh, maybe it's influenced by some of those ideas. It's not even quite charismatic renewal, but I think it's probably closest to that. 
what it means to be charismatic is to be somewhere in that that space. I will say, for the ACNA at least, um, and its ecclesial background, so if you don't know the ACNA history, I'm not going to be- belabor it or bore you with it, but just to mention, the ACNA starts first by those who kind of um, leave the Episcopal Church in the United States and in Canada and a few other places, and um, and are kind of working around to try to find uh, an organizational Episcopal structure to kind of work within, and they get help. There's a lot more to this story than this, but there's a lot of help that's afforded to this group of people here in the United States and Canada and Mexico um, by uh, Anglican Christians in Africa, as it turns out. Um, and in East Africa in the 1930s was a major charismatic Pentecostal revival. In fact, I don't know much about this revival. I don't know as much about it as I do about the Azusa Street one, but what I've read about that East African revival, it is remarkably similar to the Azusa Street revival. So there is a sense in which the charismatic side of uh, the Anglican Church in North America looks similar to the classical Pentecostals in that it begins in a revival um, in East Africa, right? And that's kind of somewhat influencing the ethos of the Anglicans that at least are part of the Anglican Church in North America, which, to go back to the history just slightly, is a pulling together of a host of different people, not just folks who left the Episcopal Church, but there were a variety of other Anglican-type communions in the United States. There's three or four, five, six, I can't remember, and all of these were brought together. So it does include parts of those who've left the, Ang- uh, the Episcopal Church, but it includes a bunch of other groups too. Um, so it's kind of got a divergent background. But some connection to the East African revival uh, is there. Again, that doesn't make it classical Pentecostal, um, but some of the kind of background experiences, at least similar in, in at least in ethos. Uh, all right, is that making sense? Bored out of your mind yet? Because that history sometimes, you know. Okay, well, here's what I think. And look, I, let me be upfront with you and tell you this. I try to dig into what is it that the ACNA thinks it means by being charismatic? Because what I don't want to assume, and why I started with the question, what do we think, what do you think when you hear charismatic? Is I don't want to assume what I think when I hear charismatic is what the ACNA means when it says charismatic. But I'll tell you, there's hardly any information officially published by the ACNA or anyone associated with the ACNA um, by what they mean by charismatic. There have been a couple writings, um, you know, on a blog here, the Anglican Compass blog, which is a great resource for those interested in um, Anglican information from the ACNA perspective. Right? So there's maybe one, one blog on that. Uh, there's a publication by a, pe- a professor of church history, He's, I think, passed away now, but he taught at Trinity Seminary, which is one of the ACNA seminaries. It's in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, but he's got like a paragraph and a half um, on, and his is Pentecostal slash holiness, uh, which is slightly different, by the way. Um, and so I mentioned what classical Pentecostalism is kind of rooted in, Azusa Street and that sort of rival. Well, that doesn't sum up everyone who's classically Pentecostal. Um, the Church of God does find its roots in there, but it's also got roots in the holiness movement from Wesley and the Methodists, uh, the Methodism that he begins. He was an Anglican, uh, Church of England Anglican, um, and starts what becomes the Methodist church, right? And, or he and a few others, at least. Right, okay, so the Church of God has its roots in that side, which is different from the Assemblies of God. It doesn't have its roots in that kind of holiness background. So what is, you know, Fairfield was his name, Professor Fairfield. What does Professor Fairfield mean by 
for the Anglican Church, it's Pentecostal holiness, right? So anyway, I'm not sure, frankly, um, what he means by that. And so I thought what I might do instead is, um, I say instead, I'm not sure what the ACNA means. But here's, I'm going to give you five kind of elements of what it means to be charismatic that I think any of us can grab onto, whether we find ourselves classical Pentecostal background like I have, or if you're, you know, charismatic renewal background, or if you're third wave, I think any of us can say, these five things make sense to me, and there's something I can, I can take as an, a, a spiritual ethos or a way of embodying the world, um, if, if that made sense at all to you. No. Okay. Now, number one, first is, so there's five of these. Number one, uh, and by the way, I'm getting this from uh, an author whose name is James K.A. Smith. He wrote a fantastic little book called Thinking in Tongues. And in that book, he marks, he lists these five elements of a Pentecostal slash charismatic, what he calls worldview, which is way of embodying the world, way of being in the world is what he means by that. And so the first, he says, element of what it means to be charismatic and he, he means charismatic slash Pentecostal he's really open about this um, is a position of radical openness to God so this is a disposition of expectation and openness to God's immediate presence and activity and here you can think of the typical gifts of the spirit those are part of it of course so speaking in tongues and um, I, I wrote a list because I knew I would forget all the ones that people usually reference. Can you state number one again? Yeah, a radical openness. Radical openness to God. Probably, if you were to write it all, radical openness to God's activity in the world. And that would include the gifts like tongues and interpretation, prophecy, words of wisdom, um, healing, discernment, deliverance. So exorcism is a part of deliverance, but deliverance also includes healing. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, I separated those out, but those are the typical, I think there are nine and I only listed six maybe. I fully understand that. Um, regardless of what it looks like, you know, I'm actually an introvert. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and I'm not very demonstrative in, in my spiritual life, uh, among other things. And so, and I, I think what it means for me to be Pentecostal in this sense, to have radical openness to God, is to think that God actually does those things, that God brings to our mind metaphors or, um, or something that when me, Luke Matthews, and Luke Campbell were talking about this, that Luke Campbell reminded me of is a contemplative prayer. Um, being open to experiences of God in contemplative prayer. These are not often dynamic, ecstatic experiences. They're quiet, silent, often solitude experiences. 
Um, but these are places in which we ought to be open to God's move. Um, and so, yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, radical openness to God is God's activity everywhere, at any time, potentially. Um, and so it's not, you know, relegated only to the Eucharist. And that's the only place that God operates. Certainly God does operate there. Um, or it's not only tongues um, or something like that. So I think in our uh, experience, every, every part of the liturgy can be a space in which the Holy Spirit is active and ministering. Um, uh, one of the ways in which this really impact, I think I had an experience with the Holy Spirit was, um, you know, the first few months when I was a part of the mission, when uh, the priest would say, you know, these are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. I think that's the phrasing. Somehow it was just, I don't know. I, it was, a, I, I felt strangely warm to borrow a phrase from John Wesley, right? Something's going on inside of me by the speaking of those words to me. And I think that's the Holy Spirit doing something. Um, and so this is what it means, I think, for us to be charismatic is I, we, we are open to, even in that phrase that's repeated every single week, that God's present and doing something in the midst of that. Um, so that's number one, radical openness to God. And number two is uh, an in, what Jamie Smith calls an enchanted theology of creation and culture. This is kind of like number one. So number two is an enchanted theology of creation and culture. Here the idea is that the Holy Spirit is present and active in creation, in the world around us, and even among people around us. So it's not just in my prayer time in liturgies. This maybe kind of combines what you were saying, actually. Um, and that, you know, so radical openness to God, yes, in moving in Eucharist or moving in the Spirit, uh, in the sermon, or in you know, our, our time of singing or whatever the case, or prayers of the people, right? Yes, of course. But actually being part of what it means to be charismatic is also to see God at work in the world around us, even in those people who don't profess Christ. Um, so plenty of Pentecostal theologians have written about that, that the Spirit's actually at work in those spaces, um, that you can find the presence of the Spirit's moving the Spirit, moving people towards God and truth, um, even in places like Islam. And this isn't to say that by being a Muslim, one is therefore Christian, but that the Spirit is also at work and active among all human beings, um, because you know, God loves all human beings. So an enchanted theology of creation and culture is that the spirit is at work and present everywhere. It's not like the world is a closed system in which God stands outside of it and has to break into it. Um, instead, the world is suffused with God's presence um, everywhere and always kind of thing. So that's part of what I think it does mean to be charismatic. So I'm open to the liturgy, giving me experience of the Holy Spirit, but then I have to be open to somehow when I'm mowing the lawn, there's something going on there too, potentially at least. Uh, or at least I'm open to the notion that God can encounter me in the midst of mowing the lawn or whatever the case. Um, so, enchanted theology of creation and culture. Number three, a non-dualistic affirmation of embodiment and materiality. Now, let me say that again. It's a non-dualistic affirmation of embodiment and materiality. So it's an affirmation of material reality is a part of what it means to be charismatic. Now I'll tell you, the church I grew up in didn't have that kind of view. 
we were spiritual only. Not, I don't, obviously, we knew we had bodies and lived in a real world and that sort of thing. But it was all about getting out of this world, going to heaven. Um, and the main impetus is to gather and save souls, right? Because this world's going to be destroyed by God anyway. Um, and the real heaven is this spiritual realm that we find ourselves in. Um, I think Smith is right that at the core of a charismatic orientation to the world is an affirmation that the material world really does matter. Um, Christ was incarnate, and so that's one affirmation. It's a kind of a core chief affirmation of what it means you know, to be embodied. But also God just creates humans from the dust, and there's something important about recalling that, um, that was so valuable to God that God creates humans out of material stuff. So there's that. But the other side of this, coupled with the things that come before it, is we, I think as charismatics, do genuinely believe that God cares for the mundane material reality of the world. So I ought to care for it. I ought to pray for healing for those who need healing. Um, this raises tough questions because God doesn't heal everybody. Maybe he doesn't even heal most people. And we all know everyone dies. Literally no one gets out of this life alive. And so we all die. And we have to confront that reality. Um, and I think those are hard questions. Ones we're not going to talk about today, of course. Those are tough questions. But anyway, so embodied reality, material reality matters. We don't, um, it's not, we're not just to push back against C.S. Lewis, we're not um, souls that have bodies. To be human is to be an embodied soul, and both matter, and the spirit is operative in both spaces, the material and the immaterial. So that's number three. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm moving quickly now. Number four, an effective, affective, A-F-F, an effective narrative what he calls epistemology. So how we know what we know is gained through affection and narrative. That's at least partly what it means to be charismatic. That is what's central to the charismatic worldview is not memorizing certain propositions or doctrines. This isn't to say that doctrines or propositions are important, um, but it is to say that we are participants in a story. And so the way Jamie Smith puts it is we are storied beings we're made who we are by our participation in particular stories. Um, and part of that's the story of God's redemption of the world. So that's part of the, like, the kind of big story we're part of. But we also have small stories. I think the way we get at this in our church here is that while the sermon's important, it's not the center of our service. It may not seem like that sometimes, but it, it is genuinely important. But Eucharist is the center of our service. It's the crux. It's the most important thing we do each week. And it's a story. It's a telling, recounting, often in prayer form, though. It's because most of that liturgy is prayer. But it's a prayer recounting the story of Jesus Christ. It's not a recitation of doctrinal commitments. Instead, it's a story that we, we hear told to us. And we're called to participate in, and, you know, that sort of thing. So part of how we come to know what we know is by listening to and telling and being part of stories. This is why I actually really like the first Sunday service, listening to testimonies. I don't ever talk. I don't give a testimony. But I think this is one of the really important things we do is hear the story of God's activity in others' lives um, in our church. It's, I think, a key marker of being maybe Pentecostal, maybe not just charismatic, but Pentecostal, is the role that testimony ought to hold. But okay, number four, just effective narrative epistemology. So something about story is important. 
And then last, there is an, what Jamie Smith calls, and I'll explain this, um, an eschatological, that's kind of oriented towards God's goal for the world. It's a fancy theological term that refers to the end of things, but you might think not the end as in the close, but the end as in the goal of things. So what God has orient, oriented us in his creation toward. So the eschatological orientation to mission and justice. So this is part of the, what Jamie Smith calls the charismatic worldview. This is number five, that we have an eschatological orientation to mission and justice. That is, and I don't, again, I don't know that this is true in every, it's not true in every Pentecostal church I've been a part of, to be frank with you. So I've noticed as I study Pentecostal theology, I don't really study that anymore, but when I did, there's a disconnect between the, the theology I studied in seminary and the theology I experienced in my home church. Um, that I think the theology I got in seminary was often quite different in some ways. Like, yeah, if that's what it means to be Pentecostal, then I don't mind being called Pentecostal. I had my own, you know, disillusionment with Pentecostal church. And uh, I was like, well, I'm not Pentecostal. Until I got to seminary and heard, you know, people like Jamie Smith talking about being Pentecostal and included one of these elements, this element, eschatological mission and justice. I thought, well, my church didn't do that. They didn't think that, well, mission, yes, in the sort of evangelism sense. We have to get out and evangelize. But what he's getting at here is that um, we work for the flourishing of all creation and particularly with attention to the marginalized. That actually gets back to some of the heart or uh, that language is contested, but at least what it seems like early Pentecostals attempted to do. There's a massive missionary movement in the early Pentecostal experience. Like people got baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in other tongues and thought, I'm speaking Chinese and just took off and went to China. Turns out they weren't speaking Chinese, um, but you know, they thought they were. And so they were off in China somewhere learning that they don't speak Chinese. Um, but that's like missionary impulse, you know? Um, which I think is something, there's something I think valuable about that but then also a commitment to justice. So in some of the early Pentecostal experiences, they were very diverge, uh, diverse at times when humans were not often diverse in their ecclesial experience. So blacks and whites worshiping and praying together um, in 1906, not typically normal, but that's happening. And so a kind of pushing against um, injustice. That's core, at least, to Anglican ideas. So think of the Anglican Defense and Relief Fund, that group that works on you know, uh, projects of development and relief for marginalized. Our own church tries to do this in the space we find ourselves, literally, like here, you know. All right, it's five o'clock. We gotta go. Sorry. Maybe a little less intro stuff next time, right? <laughs> all right, y'all. Oh, good, well, good. Um, all right, I guess that's it, so let's go to church. Let's go to liturgy. Thanks, y'all. Thank <laughs> you.